Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, cardio nerds, it's Amit and Dan. We are so honored to bring to you the Brunwald Chronicles. These are the stories of discovery, innovation, accidents, perseverance, and so much more. But truly, these are the stories of cardiology, directly from a father of modern cardiology himself, Dr. Eugene Brunwald. Dr. Brunwald's life and stories together are the saga which have brought us to this day in modern cardiology. So please join us for the Brunwald Chronicles as we journey through the storybooks, the history of cardiology, across six extraordinary chapters. We begin with chapter one, at the right place, at the right time, with the right people. We learn about how serendipitous events in Dr. Brunwald's early days, paired with his incredible grit and brilliance, got him to the NIH, where he quickly became the chief of cardiology at the age of 31, the precipice to an illustrious career ahead. Folks, as we take in this breathtaking series, please remember that CardioNerds is an independent fellow-founded platform with the goal to democratize cardiovascular education. You can support the mission by subscribing to and rating the show, donating via Patreon, getting CardioNerds swag on Teespring, and sharing your love for cardiology on social media. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice, and the views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. We thank Dr. Karan Desai, editorial APD with the Cardioners Academy and fellow at the University of Maryland for all the work he put into designing the Brunwald Chronicles. And a very special thanks to Dr. Randall Starling, advanced heart failure faculty at the Cleveland Clinic, former president of the Heart Failure Society of America, and a dedicated mentor and supporter of the Cardioners for introducing us to Dr. Eugene Brunwald and for providing the following introduction. Well, it's a real pleasure to be participating in Cardio Nerds today. I had the opportunity over a year ago in one of the first Cardio Nerds. I've tried in my own way to be supportive of Cardio Nerds because there's so many great young cardiologists involved. So, one of the things I suggested along the way to Dr. Goyle was would you like to interview? Dr. Brunwald, and not surprisingly, uh, Dr. Goyle was quite excited about that. So knowing Dr. Brunwald, I contacted him and lo and behold, he said, yes. I just wanna give a little bit of personal background on my reflections on Dr. Brunwald. I did my internal medicine training at the University of Pittsburgh, and back in the 80s, a lot of chiefs of medicine were endocrinologists. So I was asked to become a chief medical resident. So that then led to me getting called into a meeting. And this would have been around 1984 when I was a senior resident and I was called into a room, and sitting in the room were three visionaries, uh, Eugene Brunwald, Robert Petersdorf, and David Kipnis. So they were reviewing the internal medicine training program at the University of Pittsburgh. So uh, here I was, somebody that was going to be a chief resident, and 
So they had a free for all. And so Dr. Brunwald's question to me was, what are you gonna do after your residency? And I said, well, uh, I'm planning a cardiology fellowship. And his response to me was, I think that's a good decision. You know, he was, he was stern and matter of fact, but certainly not, you know, intimidating or making me uncomfortable. But that was my very first contact with him. During my residency, you know, Brunwald's first edition textbook was published in 1980. I was still in medical school at the time, and his second edition came out in 1984. So I was reading his textbook, and Petersdorf and Brunwald were authors and editors of Harrison's textbook of internal medicine. So it was just amazing to be sitting there with these individuals. And when you think about it, I use the Brunwald textbook to try to learn adult congenital heart disease to prepare for the boards. We didn't have board reviews, you know, 25, 30 years ago. The other, I think, kind of high point for me was that 10 years ago, Cleveland Clinic joined the NHLBI Heart Failure Network. So again, you walk into the room and there's Dr. Brunwald sitting there now in his 80s, chairman, and saying hello to everyone by their first name like you've been, you know, longtime friends. That has been a tremendous opportunity for me to really get to know him better and to interact with him through the Heart Failure Network. I, I have never seen anything but just a kind, courteous, gentle person throughout my interactions with him. And we all know he he's a legend. He has over 1,500 publications. He's the most frequently cited author in cardiology. And if you're into H-index and all that kind of stuff, you know, they say to be a full professor, you should have an H-index of 40 or 50. Dr. Brunwald's H-index is 271. It's just off the charts. So where did this guy come from? Well, he was born and raised in Vienna. And as an aside, it was really neat to be at the heart failure meetings in Vienna a few years ago. He was there in his hometown. He escaped Austria and his family and he they went to London. And he spent some time there in, in 1939. He left London to come to the U.S. Uh, he was 10 years old at the time. So Dr. Brunwald spent his time in the U.S. in Brooklyn, and he went to NYU. Brunwald's first wife, uh, Nina Brunwald, he met her in his junior year of college. And when I was a resident, there was all kinds of chatter about Nina Brunwald because she was a cardiac surgeon. And here's Dr. Brunwald, you know, the cardiologist. So he and his wife raised three daughters. They're, they're all professionals. There's another little factoid about him that kind of struck home with me because I've had some challenges myself, but Dr. Brunwald was admitted to NYU Medical School May 1st, 1948, do the math. And in his 
interview that was published a decade ago in Circulation Research, he pointed out he was the last person admitted to his class. He certainly has probably distinguished himself as the first person in his class. And Dr. Brunwald did complete high school and college in an accelerated five-year program. And obviously, English was not his first language. So he's really shown just amazing aptitude and accomplishments in cardiovascular medicine. You know, I, I still remember vividly being a, a resident in the VA and a senior resident kind of questioning me on rounds one day about how much I knew about Eugene Brunwald telling me that he had a hundred publications by age 30. Dr. Brunwald was the chief of medicine at the University of California, San Diego, probably around the time I met with him in 1984. So he left the NIH after 13 years and he said that he made a change because he wanted to break barriers between preclinical science and clinical medicine. So he spent his time in UCSD. It was a brand new medical school, so he was the inaugural chairman of medicine there. And then most of you probably know he, he moved on to Boston. He established the Timmy Trials Research Network. After 28 years as chairman of medicine, he stepped down and now he I think continues to devote the majority of his time to research. I'd, I'd like to pass on a couple little pearls that I thought, these are quotes from Dr. Brunwald that I think are really, really important. So he said, unless you have insatiable curiosity about what you're studying and the willingness to work hard to answer questions you have posed, I think it's unlikely you will ever be successful. So that's basically a chapter from the book on stick to and never, ever give up. And he also said you should conduct research for research's sake, not for the gains, not because you will get promoted or you'll be famous or you'll earn more money. Those things will come if you're successful. So I think to wrap up, Dr. Goyle, everyone needs a mentor irrespective of your stage in life. And, and Dr. Brunwald, I'm proud to say, has become a friend and mentor to me that I seek out for advice. And I can't tell you how privileged I am that he asked me to write a chapter for the 12th edition. So I just completed the chapter on cardiac transplantation for that book. So that's, of course, a great honor. And I think as your listeners will see, he has this uncanny ability when you're around him to distill the essence of every question, discussion, and manuscript provides all in his presence a wonderful opportunity to learn. He, he just can always find the essential question to ask. So I'm very thankful to have befriended this amazing, what I'll call genius of cardiology, and through this friendship to be able to make this introduction to cardio nerds. So I truly look forward to listening to your dialogue. 
with Professor Eugene Brunwald. My fellow cardio nerds, it is a distinct honor to welcome all of you to this landmark discussion with the father of modern cardiology, Dr. Eugene Brunwald. All of us have no words to describe the privilege we feel at this moment. In Thomas Lee's biography about Dr. Brunwald, which I encourage all of you to read, he writes that Dr. Brunwald often has said that he was lucky to be in the right place at the right time with the right people, and thus luck enabled him to make contributions to the advancement of medicine. But as Thomas Lee notes, Dr. Brunwald was repeatedly in the right place at the right time with the right people. Dr. Brunwald's story, accomplishments, and legacy are deeply intertwined with the history of modern medicine, and we are so lucky to hear those stories today, to today be in this right place at the right time with the right person. Now over nearly seven decades, Dr. Brunwald has led the transformation of medicine, launched thousands of careers, and saved countless lives with his research and clinical care. Today, we cardio nerds are deeply honored and thrilled to be joined by Dr. Eugene Brunwald. Dr. Brunwald, thank you so much for joining us today, taking us through pivotal moments in your storied career, and all of us would like to welcome you to the Cardio Nerds. Well, thank you. Thank you for that nice introduction. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Dr. Brunwald, you completed your internship at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. As you were going through your intern year, the United States had instituted the doctor draft to build up its physician corps. Doctors could be drafted at any time, interrupting training and leaving gaps in the hospital's on-call schedule. At Mount Sinai, the chief of medical services decided he would not accept any residents who had not completed their military service. This proved to be a pivotal moment. Can you tell us how this moment jump-started your research career and how it eventually led you to a position at the NIH? Well, it's a story my father used to say, what is superficially bad may not be bad, and what's superficially good may not be good. This is one of those examples, and he and I talked about it a lot. So I had been married to a classmate a year before, around the time of graduating from medical school. And my first wife, she's been deceased for 25 years, was the first female surgical resident in the history of Bellevue Hospital. And what she didn't want, and I supported her in that, was to be a trailing spouse, that if I were inducted into the military service, the Korean War was just coming to a close. They would have sent people to either to Alaska or to certain parts of Germany or maybe Seoul, and there was nothing for her there. And so I certainly uh, didn't want to enlist, and so I had to find a job. I, I was quite upset that they didn't want to take a chance on me starting my residency after the internship, but so be it. And I had taken an elective in my fourth year at NYU Medical School at Bellevue Hospital in the cardiac catheterization laboratory. Now, cardiac catheterization, we're talking about now, we're talking about 1951, 52, was a very far advanced research procedure. It was not a diagnostic test yet. So this was, quote, basic research at the time. So and I'd had some three months experience in the cath lab. I hadn't done any caths, but I knew what pressure tracings were. I knew how to uh, zero a monomena. And so I went to um, see if I could get a fellowship 
uh, using the experience that I had for three months as a uh, medical student. And they were anxious to have me. And so I got a fellowship, a salary of $2,000 a year, which was uh, quite substantial at the time. And it was a terrific year. There was no structured fellowship program. So I would work in the cath lab in the mornings. I'd learn how to do procedures. And then I went to uh, the, the heart station and I went on consults. And I worked with the um, electrocardiography. And I ended up in six or seven areas of cardiology, actually publishing substantially in top-notch journals. We made the first measurements of the gradient across the uh, mitral valve. And that was in my first paper that came out that was published in circulation with me as the first author. I was very proud of that. There are a lot of other people who were on the paper, but it, it showed that I was engaged. And so it was an excellent year. I don't hear anything from the draft board. Things are quiet. I'm having a great time. My wife, Dina, is having a good year as a junior resident. She went through the internship at the same time as I did at Bellevue. But something's wrong. I mean, I should be drafted at some point, and, and they, they knew that in the cath lab that I might not be there for the whole year. But the year is over, so I look around, and, and what is the best cath lab program in the world? Well, it's at Bellevue Hospital. Not Bellevue Hospital had three divisions. NYU, which is where I took my training, Columbia and Cornell. Bellevue Hospital at that time had 4,000 beds. So it was just a monstrosity. But the first division, which was the Columbia University Division, had a cath lab. So Bellevue Hospital, at a time where there were maybe 15 cath labs in the United States, two of them were at Bellevue Hospital. And I went to the second one after the first. It was led by Andre Cornand, who was the father of cardiac catheterization, and who was a year from winning the Nobel Prize for cardiac catheterization. And he took me into the lab, and I got an NIH fellowship that supported me. Now I'm in big money, about uh, $3,000 a year. That was a big raise, and um, it was a great year. Now, so we're thinking about next year, what, you know, where is this going at some point? You know, doctors are being drafted. My colleagues who had been interns, one by one, fell by the wayside. I figured it was only a matter of time. Now, I'm in the second year of doing research, which had not been anywhere in my mind before. This is quite accidental. I had to do something. And uh, they're building this gigantic new research hospital in Bethesda, Maryland. And... uh, So here I see, well, gee, maybe I can get a job there. And uh, Nina could switch and finish her residency at Georgetown. She wasn't too happy about that, but she was willing to accept it. So so the deal was, if I could get into it, it was very, very tough to get into because it was the U.S. Public Health Service, which satisfied military requirements. So everybody tried to get in there. I mean, there were literally maybe 
2,000 applicants for each position. So I get interviewed by the director of research. He looks at my resume and he said, you're, you're working in Cornan's laboratory? Is that correct? I said, yes, sir, I am. So he said, would you step out for a moment? Okay, I stepped out. Uh, two minutes later, um, he comes, opens the door, he says, come on back in, you've got the job. So this was done because this was such a famous laboratory. And he had called Cournand, and Cournand said, yeah, he's okay. Nothing special. But uh, that was, so you think about something bad that initially was really very traumatic, not having a residency, having, you know, an internal problem. What happens to my wife? How do I, the whole thing was complicated. So um, the next thing that happens is I hear from the draft board. The draft board then says you have to come in for your physical. It was, it was the U.S. Navy. And uh, so I, I had a job and I let them know that I was going to the public health service. They said, no. I said, uh, you know, you've got to be down here uh, a week from Monday for your physical. And if you're not, you're not going to be uh, inducted as a doctor. You're going to be an ordinary seaman. So I called this man, uh, uh, who later was my boss, Robert Berlitta, and I said, look, I'm in trouble. And he said, you go down to the Marine Hospital in Staten Island, and I will have you inducted into the public health service immediately. You don't have to come here till July. I want you to finish your year with Cournot. And um, and he notified the Navy, and that was my military service. So I got to the NIH in July, and it was incredible. It was incredible. So, I mean, I had now under my belt about 25 publications in major journals. I had worked in a Nobel Prize winning laboratory. But the NIH at that time, the major building, Building 10 Clinical Center, was gigantic. They were finishing the floors. I mean, there were acres of space. And I worked in cardiovascular physiology. I uh, elected to to go basic, as it were, more basic than human. And that was the beginning of my um, experience there. I certainly needed more clinical training, and they sent me to Hopkins. I remained an officer in the public health service while I was a resident, an Oslo resident, which was a terrific experience. And with Nina, she was uh, a uh, chief resident at Georgetown, and so she didn't have any time for me. I was in Baltimore. And then I got back to the NIH, and I was very fortunate because um, I ascended very rapidly. And there were a few accidents along the way. The person who ran the cath lab accepted the job at Duke as chief of cardiology, and it was Hal Dodge. It was very, very good. They looked around for a director of the cath lab. They found a very good person in Denver. He came and uh, gave the equivalent of grand rounds. And I remember his lecture quite well, because they had been working on adult tetralogies, and gave a great lecture, and they offered him the job on the spot. Uh, and he went um, home uh, to Denver, and uh, his wife found him the next morning. He had committed suicide. 
horrible, horrible. Guy in his early to mid thirties. I don't know what it was. Maybe it had obviously it was related to taking this job or I never found out what it was. They're stuck. They're looking around. They've got the guy who's the director of the cath lab on his way to North Carolina. They have a person whom they've selected to be his successor uh, dead, and they got to do something. So they look at me, and they said, would you run the cath lab? And I said, well, yeah, if you say so. It was, uh, uh, I mean, I had been doing caths there, even though I was in cardiovascular physiology. Every opportunity I took would be in the afternoon uh, because I would be a physiologist until 3 p.m. and, and a uh, interventionalist from 3 p.m. And so it gave me a tremendous opportunity. And then one thing led to another, and by the age of 31, I was chief of cardiology. So this is an example of, of how strange things happen in life. They don't have to go that way. They, it, it all went in the right direction. I couldn't have written it better. But, you know, a lot of times life doesn't treat you that way. It goes down instead of up. So I was very lucky, and that's, that's, that's what I meant. I was in the right place. I mean, the fact that I took that elective as a medical student when other medical students were taking Durham and uh, ENT because they wanted to be well-rounded and the ENT program for students wasn't very good at NYU at the time and so forth. And I happened to end up in the cath lab and that opened doors that I never suspected. And I, when I went to medical school, it was not with the goal of becoming a, an academic uh, researcher. I wanted to be what was called an internist, which at that time was very different from a PCP, because most physicians at that time were GPs. They had a year of internship and no further training. So climbing the ladder in internal medicine was would have been my goal if you had asked me in 1948 when I started uh, medical school, what would you like to be doing in 10 years? I wouldn't have said, I want to direct a large cardiac uh, research program. I would have said, I'd like to be an internal medicine specialist and get referred the difficult cases. A wonderful story, Dr. Bronald. And, you know, you reminded me, actually, my dad says something similar. There's an expression in Hebrew that translates to, this also is for good. So, you know, with yeah. every obstacle, there is always a silver lining as you experience. And also, you know, as your story suggests, it sounds like we have to thank your your late wife for, you know, in a sense, shifting your trajectory towards a path of research. Yes. It's really quite remarkable. Yes. Yeah. And I certainly have thought about that. <laughs> yeah, you know, you walk us through these events. At one point, you said that one thing led to another, and I was the chief of cardiology by age 31. And oftentimes, as we're living through these sort of chain of events, we don't recognize what's happening. But, you know, as you laid out, one thing did lead to another. It's remarkable. And the way you speak about your time at the NIH, particularly so fondly, clearly this was a, a very important and impactful time for yourself. Yes, I, you know, I think... The years that I spent at the NIH, got there in 55, 
and left in 1968. So I think that it was the time that Kennedy was uh, president, of course, from uh, 60 to 63. And those of us who were there, the group of uh, us who worked together in the cardiology division, consider those our Camelot years. It was like Camelot. Uh, because most everything sort of worked. Yeah, what a stimulating time. If you'll allow me, I'd like to take you back to the beginning of your time over there. When you initially arrived at the NIH, you were appointed to work in the laboratory of Dr. Stanley Sarnoff, and he posed a question for the lab. What controls myocardial oxygen consumption? You know, you talked about how you went, you know, more basic than the human being. And you also began working closely with Dr. Glenn Morrow, who at the age of 30 became the first chief of the clinic of surgery at the NIH studying valvular heart disease. So can you tell us a little bit about your early research years at the NIH and a theme of your career, as you pointed out, has been being at the right place at the right time with the right people. And one of the moments that seemed to have been at the NIH in those early years was the creation of the transeptal approach. Would you mind sharing with us that story? So I felt coming out of the Cornell Laboratory that I needed more training in basic physiology. Wow, what an absolute treat. Friends, thank you so much for joining us for the Brunwald Chronicles. And be sure to stay tuned for Chapter 2, when we hear about the Camelot years, myocardial oxygen consumption, and the transeptal approach. (laughs) 